You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is first-time guest, uh, Mr. David McIlvaney. Uh, David's got a uh, really neat program uh, called Vaulted that he's here to talk about. And uh, we're going to get his take on the metals markets as well as the stock market and uh, where he thinks things are going. David has been a frequent commentator uh, on uh, just about every major television network, so I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with him. And let me remind you that if you are a new listener, uh, we have a number of resources available for you. We are all about education here at RLA Radio. And if you would like to visit our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, there are a number of resources there, including our weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch. Uh, That newsletter is available for free. It is delivered via email. Uh, You can go to the website and request your free subscription. It's delivered every Monday night at 5. And in it, uh, we give you our market forecast as well as economic commentary. Uh, So again, the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com to go there and uh, get more information. A couple weeks ago here on the program, I talked about a new law that has gone into effect uh, in 2020. It's called the SECURE Act. And if you have an IRA or a 401k, the SECURE Act will affect you. Now, I'll give you just a brief overview of the SECURE Act uh, once again here today. Uh, The first big thing that the SECURE Act does, if you are approaching 70 and a half, which is the age at which prior to the SECURE Act being passed, you had to start taking required minimum distributions from your IRA or 401k, there is a bit of good news. Uh, You can defer or put off taking required minimum distributions until you're 72. So that adds a year and a half to the time frame uh, at which you have to start taking distributions and paying taxes on those distributions from any retirement account. And those rules apply to an IRA, a 401k, a 403b, uh, basically any type of retirement account except for a Roth IRA. So if you turn 70 and a half after December 31, 2019, you are eligible to postpone your first distribution until age 72. Now, the SECURE Act does one other thing that I think is uh, beneficial, and that is, as far as IRA contributions are concerned, as long as you have earned income, you can contribute to a traditional IRA. Prior to the SECURE Act being passed, you could not contribute to a traditional IRA once you reached age 70 and a half. So that rule has changed as well. Now, the 529 plan, and if you're not familiar with a 529 plan, a 529 plan is a tax-advantaged plan that allows for educational savings. 529 plan assets can now be used to pay for registered apprenticeships, homeschooling, up to $10,000 of qualified student loan repayments, including for siblings of the beneficiary of the 529 plan. Also, 529 plan assets can be used to pay for private elementary, secondary, or religious schools. 
Now, given the massive amount of student debt that exists out there, this could be potentially good news for some families uh, because the student loan provision allows student loans to be repaid for a beneficiary up to $10,000, and an additional $10,000 can be used from the plan to pay off student debt for each of the beneficiary's siblings, as I said. So that becomes a potentially really good benefit uh, for a lot of families. And for those folks that have put money away in a 529 plan, there's now more ways to use that money. Now, the SECURE Act also allows IRA investors to access IRA funds early without paying the 10% early withdrawal penalty. You'll still pay tax on the withdrawal, but not the penalty that's imposed for those who are under 59 and a half for taking money out of an IRA early. Now, this is for any qualified birth or adoption. So each parent can take a penalty-free withdrawal of up to $5,000. And again, this is not subject to the penalty, but you will pay tax on the withdrawal. Now, there is some bad news associated with the SECURE Act. If you intended to leave your IRA to an heir prior to the SECURE Act being passed, there was a strategy that a lot of IRA and 401k investors use called the stretch-out IRA. In fact, this stretch-out IRA strategy has actually been a cornerstone of estate planning for many IRA and 401k owners. So a non-spouse beneficiary, often that would be a child, one of your children. So if one of your children was the beneficiary on your IRA or 401k, prior to the SECURE Act being passed, they had the ability to inherit the retirement plan and spread the taxes on the inherited account over his or her lifetime. So for example's sake, a 50-year-old child inheriting an IRA from a parent could take minimum distributions based on his or her life expectancy, pay tax on the distribution, but allow the remaining IRA balance to grow on a tax-deferred basis. Now, a 50-year-old has a life expectancy of another 34.2 years. So if you're 50 and inherit mom or dad's IRA, you could take whatever the balance is, divide by 34.2, and take that amount out in the form of a distribution and pay tax on it. The rest of the account could continue to grow on a tax-advantaged or tax-deferred basis. The next year, when you're 51, you simply divide whatever the account balance is at the end of the prior year by 33.2, and the next year, 32.2. And in this way, you could adopt the IRA and take distributions out till you're 84 years old in this particular example. Now, that option, as great as that option was, is no longer available under the new law. And incidentally, that distribution on an inherited IRA also applied to a Roth IRA. The difference is distributions from a Roth are tax-free. Distributions from a traditional IRA would be taxable. But as I said, that stretch-out option is no longer available under the new law. The SECURE Act mandates that any, any inherited money in an IRA, in a 401k, or a Roth IRA 
be totally distributed within 10 years of inheriting the account. Now that can be done any number of ways. It can be taken out equally over 10 years. It can be left to accumulate for nine years and take everything out in the 10th year. But all the money has to be taken out and taxes have to be paid on it over a 10-year time frame or within a 10-year time frame, I should say. Now, there are some strategies that you might be able to use to get a stretch out if that's something that you would like to do. In fact, there's a number of clients that set up something called an IRA inheritance trust. And the IRA inheritance trust was often used for someone who had a beneficiary and they were concerned about that beneficiary's ability to manage money. The IRA Inheritance Trust may have mandated the stretch out. It may have said, look, you can't get the money lump sum. You have to take the stretch out. You have to take it over time. If you're listening today and you have a trust like that, you're going to want to have a lawyer take a look at it because mandating a stretch out is no longer a possibility under the SECURE Act. So there are there is a strategy that I'll talk about in the last segment of today's program that if you would like to have the ability to have your beneficiaries take money out of your IRA over time and adopt the account as their own so they can have their own source of retirement income, there is a way to do that. And I'll be talking about it in the last segment of today's program. I also talk about it in our January newsletter. Uh, we publish a newsletter for our clients every month. It is a written newsletter. It's titled the You May Not Know Report. And uh, the January issue has an article in it on the SECURE Act and all the ins and outs of the SECURE Act and uh, a lot of what you need to know about the SECURE Act if you have an IRA or a 401k. If you'd like a complimentary copy of the January newsletter, we would be glad to send it to you. You just have to give the office a call at 866-921-3613, and we would be glad to mail you a complimentary copy of the newsletter. Again, the number is 866-921-3613 to get a free copy of that newsletter. Uh, just for clarification, at the beginning of the segment, I mentioned our weekly email newsletter titled Portfolio Watch. This is a written newsletter that goes only to clients and uh, close friends of RLA. And uh, we'd be glad to get you all a copy of it this month if you would like to have it. It is uh, complimentary. There are no strings attached. We'll drop a copy in the mail to you. All you have to do is give the office a call during office hours at 866-921-3613, and we'll get it out of the mail to you. Office hours are 8 to 5. Monday through Thursday and 8 to noon on Friday. Again, the number is 866-921-3613. You want to be sure to stay tuned to the fourth segment of today's program because I will be talking about a specific Secure Act stretch out strategies, how to salvage your stretch. And after the break, I'll be back uh, with Mr. David McElvaney and we'll get his take on what's coming up in his view in the markets. I'll be back after these words. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am very pleased to welcome, as a first-time guest on the program today, Mr. David S. McIlvaney. Uh, David is CEO of the McIlvaney Financial Companies, International Collectors Associates, and McIlvaney Wealth Management. He is a featured speaker on national television programs, including CNBC, Fox News, Fox Business News, Bloomberg, uh, many radio programs such as this one, and is also and often often a keynote speaker at financial seminars around the world. And you can listen to his market commentary with world leaders, bankers, economists, and renowned investors at McIlvaneyCommentary.com. David, welcome to the program. Pleasure to chat with you today. Dennis, it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, David, let's just jump in a minute, if we could, and just get your take on the current state of the economy, and then we'll jump into Fed policy. But give us your assessment of where we are. Yeah, well, for the last couple of years, the U.S. economy has been the standout in the global scene as we've seen growth trends uh, declining in China um, to now 30-year lows in terms of their growth rate. Uh, We've seen that impact a lot of your emerging markets very negatively. Of course, the trade issues that we've had with China have sort of exacerbated that trend. And so uh, if you're doing sort of a relative comparison, we've been the best looking. Um, Less than 2% growth, uh, not all that stellar particularly if you look at the trillions of dollars that have been pumped into the system by the central bank, not only the Fed, but other central banks around the world probably should have expected and should have seen more economic activity and growth over the last decade and certainly over the last year or so. Um, But I'd have to say the economy is not in, in terrible shape here in the U.S. Now, the financial markets I would describe as incredibly frail. Um, So we're kind of talking about two different things. The economy can roll over at any point, um, but today it's, it's not all that bad. The financial markets, we do believe, are on a very precarious perch indeed. Well, let's uh, break that down a minute, and let's just talk about the financial markets. Uh, stocks at this point, um, I think we could all agree, are extremely overvalued relative to uh, historical average valuations. Um, how much higher do you think they can go? Well, it's a little bit like asking how much crazier can crazy get. And if you've ever (laughs) known someone who's a little bit off their rocker, um, behavior can sometimes surprise you. So, you know, that is what we're dealing with in the stock market is its behavior and its individuals who are very enthusiastic and momentum has been on the side of the bulls uh, here for some time. Um, But I think one of the things we see is sort of peak complacency. When you look at sort of measures of risk within the markets where, you know, on a daily weekly basis, we're looking at, you know, credit default swap spreads and various things that would indicate um, if there's real concern about, you know, a group like Goldman Sachs or Deutsche Bank or JP Morgan, um, we want to see how people are betting on on their long-term stability. And we're right now, Dennis, at the same levels we were in 2007. People are fat and happy. People are absolutely, and this is not just a consequence of being sort of, you know, post-Christmas and everybody's got sort of a food hangover coma. Everyone is enthusiastic about the stock markets, and everyone thinks that 2020 is going to be just as good as 2019, if not better. At least that's how the internals of the market are set up. So we would look at that as peak complacency. If you recall, 2007 was, again, as good as as it got, 
just prior to the major collapse there, 2008 and 2009. So looking at the sentiment indicators, uh, boy, I think there's a lot that we can uh, we can look at. Just here, even in the last few days, we've had um, the fear and greed index hit 97% greed, highest ever, and it's been sitting above 90% for a number of days. And if you're looking at the bull bear uh, differentials, uh, we're also at a level that would imply, uh, again, sort of peak complacency. David, when you when you talk about uh, the, the the market, uh, and I've had different guests on the program that have different perspectives, uh, but I think they all agree that to some extent, and maybe varying all the way up to a very large extent, uh, Fed policy has really been driving the market. In other words, when you create money, it's got to go somewhere, and stocks seem to have been the beneficiary. Uh, to what extent would you agree or disagree with that? I, I would completely agree with it. It's one of the reasons why my reaction or response to your first question dealt with sentiment more than it did fundamentals, because I agree with you on fundamentals as well. We are overpriced, and this is a very expensive market. Unfortunately, fundamentals stopped mattering a number of years ago as central banks stepped in and basically said, as re, you know, Draghi in 2011 said, we'll do whatever it takes to hold up the markets. And we've seen uh, similar actions echoed by the Bank of Japan the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve, and their footprint in the marketplace has become the defining factor in asset prices being as inflated as they are. So yes, fundamentals are very out of whack. And to your original point, they can get even more out of whack because the central banks of the world have committed basically unlimited sums uh, to the project of, of keeping it normal and kicking the can down the road. Well, David, as uh, you were talking, uh, you know, as a reminder of the fact that when you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it's been expanding significantly again since mid-September as the Fed has been supporting the repo market. Uh, and it seems that even though we're not supposed to call it QE4, QE4 is here. And it seems that given uh, the, 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 the sales of U.S. Treasuries around the world and the lack of interest in buying them of late, that this is a course that not only the Federal Reserve, but it seems like all world central banks are going to have to stay with this easy money policy. And then, you know, that'll work until it won't. So g give me your take. Yeah, I mean, I think there's both the repo market concerns, which we saw emerge in September um, up through the end of the year, as well as their expanded balance sheet, which has been in addition to their interventions on an overnight basis in the repo markets. And what we see is, is the central banks doing all that they can, but also crying uncle to a certain degree. They're crying uncle saying, look, we can't do this forever, and the results are not all that stellar. Um, we can lower rates uh, below zero, um, and, and that's only going to get us so far. So they're kind of tapping out at this point and asking politicians to do their fair share, quote unquote, which is launch a, a, a massive fiscal uh, intervention. And I think that's really what we would see. That would be our view, 2020, and in the next election years for us, 2021, 22, whoever is in, in, in uh, office here in the United States is going to be spending a lot of money. So the trillion dollars that the Congressional Budget Office says that we're going to have added to the national debt this year, I think you can add another trillion, trillion and a half on top of that as we get into massive fiscal spending to replace the inefficacy of, of, of the, monetary, um, you know, the monetary efforts by the Fed. Well, David, this all has to be, uh, as I have been an advocate of, and I, I think you share that opinion, although I won't put words in your mouth, this has to be 
beneficial long-term for tangible assets. And before we had a chance to uh, start recording uh, our conversation today, you shared with me a bit about a, a program that um, that I think you called Vaulted. And uh, I, I think it'd be interesting uh, to, to use that comment as a springboard to talk about your view for tangible assets moving ahead and why, and then maybe explain a little bit about what Vaulted is to the listeners. Yeah, Dennis, just for some context, I think when we look at the gold market, today we tend to view it as a commodity, whereas historically it's played the role of money. And of course, that has not been the case uh, to varying degrees. You could look back to 1933 or even with the Bretton Woods Agreement where gold was still a part of the system that came apart in 1971. I, I want to I go back to the 1920s just as an anecdote. The stock market, of course, was raging. We had a, a, an amazing bull market, what they call the Roaring Twenties up to 1929, and a very astute lady, Hetty Green, um, and many like her, um, both in the 1907 run-up just before that crisis and in the run-up to the crisis uh, there in 1929-1930, smart money was coming out of stocks and going into cash. But what was cash at that point in time? It was gold. There was a bank known as Old Bullion, or Chemical Bank, and Chemical Bank kept 100% of their deposits in gold. And that's where the smart money went. If you were in New York pulling money out of stocks, you went to Chemical Bank, or quote-unquote Old Bullion. Dennis, we launched Vaulted, which is a program, you can check it out at vaulted.com, to be that kind of bank for people as they start diversifying out of stocks, and into cash, but again, not today's cash, worthless greenbacks, worth their intrinsic value, paper, zero, but instead the old-fashioned money, gold ounces. If you want to own gold ounces and be able to buy and sell very inexpensively uh, from your laptop or smartphone, Vaulted.com is, I think, one of the greatest innovations in the 21st century. It brings thousands of years of stability right into the 21st century, enabling you to own the asset uh, without the encumbrances uh, that are sometimes experienced with the physical metals. Well, terrific. Well, David, we've got just a, a couple minutes left in this segment. Uh, you know, you, Vaulted is essentially, uh, you know, a way to have what I would consider to be real money. Do you think or can you imagine a scenario under which that a government around the world were to go back to the gold standard or maybe a gold-backed cryptocurrency? Well, I think one of the things that that implies, Dennis, is that politicians are willing to accept constraints on their spending. And, and that's, that's uh, difficult for, for me to imagine on this side of a crisis, but perhaps there is an environment on the other side of a significant financial crisis where the credibility of the currency is more important than the credibility they have with voters by handing out pork uh, via pork barrel spending. So t- today, it's impossible. I, I don't see anyone in Europe. I don't see anyone in Japan wanting there to be constraints on spending. In fact, we've got talk of modern monetary theory, which is kind of an excuse to spend any amount of money and just print it to cover those bills. So quite the opposite. The trend is the other direction towards monetary profligacy and I think ultimately the destruction of our currency. I wish I would see uh, greater responsibility being taken, but not, not on this side of a crisis, I'm afraid, Dennis. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today is Mr. David McIlvaney. He is CEO of McIlvaney Financial Companies. Uh, You can check out his Vaulted program at vaulted.com, and you can check out his weekly market commentary at McIlvaneyCommentary.com. 
The good news is David's going to join me for another segment, so stay with us. We will both be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am chatting today with Mr. David S. McIlvaney. David is CEO of the McIlvaney Financial Companies. Uh, if you're just joining us, I would encourage you to check out a couple websites uh, where you can learn more about David and his work, vaulted.com, as well as McIlvaneyCommentary.com, where you can uh, listen in on his market commentary with world leaders, bankers, and economists. So, David, when we left off in uh, the prior segment, uh, you talked about the fact that, you know, it's unlikely that the politicians would actually start to display uh, any degree of um, any degree of restraint uh, until there is a crisis. So uh, it seems to me that this this money creation is going to continue until we have a crisis. Um, in fact, I think it was the late economist Herbert Stein who said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop, which is very profound if you think about it. Uh, so at what point does this stop and what does this crisis look like? Well, what we've seen is an evolution or a devolution in, in money through time. And this started in 1913, where we started to sort of hand the keys of the kingdom over to the Federal Reserve, and I think accelerated rapidly from there in the 1970s, where we redefined money as credit. So now we have not only monetary expansion, but credit expansion. And that credit expansion is almost the same thing. But under our eyes, we've had a massive inflation occur. It may show up not as consumer price inflation, but as asset price inflation. And I think ultimately we may see a dose of uh, consumer price inflation as well. But we've we've expanded the role of credit, and 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 credit has almost taken on money-like qualities. And financial assets have too. The moneyness of credit, the moneyness of assets has been sort of the defining factor of the last 20 years. So we look around and Dennis, we're very comfortable as long as asset prices are going up. But notice, notice how sensitive the Federal Reserve is and other central banks are to a decline in the value of asset prices. It affects the credit markets in a very dramatic way. We saw the whole world uh, grind to a halt in 2008 and 2009 after Lehman Brothers. And, and I think we've discovered just what a bad experiment this was. Basically, it works until it doesn't, and it's all based on confidence. So here we are, 2020, and I think we're on the edge. We're on the edge of discovering just how frail the credit markets are, how frail the financial markets are, and ultimately, with the redefinition uh, towards something less than ideal, uh, how frail our monetary system is. You know, you made a statement, David, that uh, when we redefined money as credit, and a lot of our listeners uh, may not really grasp what that means, but th that's really profound, that, that money has gone from really something that's tangible and solid and has intrinsic value into being loaned into existence. Could, could you just expand on that for our listeners that may not understand that really crucial point? Yeah, well, and it might take an, another interview, Dennis, but we, we've got a couple of things going on there. One is the nature of fractional reserve banking, where every dollar that gets put into the system as a deposit can be re-lent out as more money. Redeposited, re-lent out, re-deposited, re-lent out. So $1 entering the banking system may actually have a 10 or $15 
footprint by the time it's all said and done. So there's, there's the nature of banking today, which expands dollars via the debt markets and, and allows for there to be even more money. Uh, even though a li- only a little money was created, a lot of money can exist in the system because of fractional reserve banking. But I think what we've seen happen uh, uh, that's really important to grasp here in the last 10 years, we had a debt problem coming into 2008 and 2009. We've nearly doubled not only our national debt, we've got corporate debt, which is now 50% of GDP. Everyone has decided that debt is the way forward. The problem is, Dennis, you and I know this on a personal basis, ultimately you have to pay the piper. There is a bill that comes due, and on that day, you either have the money or you don't. And I think this is going to be the surprise as we head into the next three, four years, corporate America is massively in debt. Our government and governments around the world have increased the stakes of their very survival and credibility on this massive expansion of debt. And the only reason they've been able to do this is because they have no sound foundation. They have no restraint, and that is the role that gold has played for thousands of years. It represented a a, a restraint or a stabilizer for the currency. You could not make more promises than the money you had in the system. Now you can make as many promises as you want. Think about what that means for politicians. You can promise the sun, moon, and stars, and theoretically, you have access to the money. How has that worked out historically? If you go back in time, this is the same kind of thing that has occurred in Hungary in the last hundred years, in Germany in the last hundred years, in Venezuela in the last few years, in Argentina in the last decade, where promises outstripped, right? There was too many promises and and, and, and they abused the monetary system to make good on those promises, ultimately collapsing confidence and collapsing the financial markets at the same time. You know, David, it's uh, a couple ways to go here, but I want to talk first about some of the. Uh, even though we are, you know, have trillion-dollar deficits, as far as the eye can see, which you mentioned in the first segment, uh, we've got a national debt that is virtually unpayable. We have uh, certain aspiring politicians that are talking about Medicare for all, which has a price tag of thirty-plus trillion over ten years, from what I've seen, which is almost. You know, it takes a good chunk of U.S. tax receipts just to pay for that. So, I mean, are, are we? quickly moving toward Venezuelan type policies and are we going to see similar outcomes you know it's really a question of of timing and I, you when we when you and I say the bill comes due we're taking some responsibility for the obligations that we make today that may impact future generations and this is where I think we need greater accountability with our politicians because they don't care when the bill comes due they just care that they get the votes today they don't care what the cost is tomorrow so the bill comes due and they're willing to promise anything free education for all free Medicare for all that's fine that's wonderful. I hope everybody gets a free lunch. But the bill comes due. And is it morally responsible for us to hand over the bill to future generations? I would say this is where we have a moral deficit. And this is one of the defining factors of our day. Can we please take responsibility for our actions and not allow politicians to push off what is a, a terrible cost long term on the future generations? I think of my children and grandchildren and say, we are doing this to them, not for them. Is that fair to say we're doing this to them and not for them? Well, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, I, in the 
we could talk a lot, but there's one more topic I want to be sure to get in while we still have time. And you had mentioned that, you know, we've never seen debt used to this extent. And there's a really interesting dynamic, if you want to use the term interesting, that's really uh, emerged over the past few years. And that is this whole notion of negative interest rates on debt. I think last I looked, David, you can correct me if uh, you, you have a different number, but I think it was about $17 trillion of debt worldwide is yielding a negative interest rate. And that might even answer the question, I think, that you asked in the first segment, how crazy can crazy get? Uh, what's your take on negative interest rates? I mean, it's just not normal to loan someone money and be happy getting back less than what you paid them. Uh, when does this end? Dennis, this is one of the reasons why we launched, launched Vaulted.com and, and have seen a huge response because we have to have a reliable store of value as a basis for savings and future investment. And if the dollar, as, as the euro and as the yen and as, as the Scandinavian currencies have already demonstrated, can be taxed in yet another way, you realize that that's all the negative interest rate is. It's one more way for the system to pick your pocket. That's all it is, is picking your pocket. They'll do it via inflation. They'll do it via an increase in, in explicit taxation. And here we have yet one more way for your wealth to be taxed. And I think gold represents an opt-out. Vaulted represents a very easy way of shifting in and out of the system uh, to have a reliable store of savings. And yeah, you mentioned $17 trillion. I think as interest rates have come up since the mid-year, maybe that number is closer to $13, $14 trillion at present. Um, but it's unprecedented. We've never seen interest rates at these levels, not in 5,000 years of world history. So what are we doing? We're experimenting. We're experimenting and just hoping for the best. This is not science. This is not science. This is much more like the art of Frankenstein, where you say, is that science or is this madness? And so we come back to that original question of how crazy does crazy get? I think these guys and gals are willing to experiment to the point where not, not where the system is the system is actually in jeopardy. The entire financial system. You know, David, when you think about it, uh, the only way an investor would really buy a bond that's yielding a negative interest rate is if they expect interest rates to go lower, which has essentially turned uh, much of the bond market into another equity market. So when you look at the way people invest traditionally in a 401k or IRA, it's the keep some of your money in stocks, some of your money in bonds, because they tend to be inversely correlated. But it seems like that may not be the case moving ahead. What's your take? I think you're exactly right, Dennis. That's a very healthy dynamic to be aware of. And if you're an investor heading towards retirement and your financial advisor is saying, I think you ought to be moving out of stocks and into bonds, recognize that you're probably moving from the frying pan right into the fire. Bonds are more overpriced than they've ever been in 5,000 years. So if you're talking about a crazy bull market that is long in the tooth, the bond market is the greatest bubble on earth today, uh, only followed secondarily by uh, the stock market, which, which I think you know, still could move up a little bit more. Um, but I think you're right. Everyone assuming that they have a balanced portfolio between stocks and bonds uh, is, is really in a tough spot because those two things, going back to what we talked about earlier, Dennis, they've both been driven and they've both become very correlated because the Federal Reserve, because our central bank is putting money into the system and they are an artificial, an artificial source of demand. They're pushing up prices in stocks, they're pushing up prices in bonds, which pushes yields down in bonds and creating jeopardy all over the place. 
Well, the clock tells me we have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. David McIlvaney. David is CEO of the McIlvaney Financial Companies. Uh, you can check out his Vaulted program at vaulted.com, and I'd encourage you to check out his weekly commentary at McIlvaneyCommentary.com. David, very much enjoyed our interview today, and uh, would love to have you back down the road. Look forward to that, Dennis. We will be back after these words. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today, and thanks again to uh, our first-time guest on the program, Mr. David McIlvaney, for joining us uh, on the program today. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about some of the changes that are now effective as it relates to your IRA or 401k or even Roth IRA, for that matter. And uh, for those of you that uh, maybe missed the first segment, our January newsletter that's distributed to clients has an article about the SECURE Act. We'll tell you much of what you need to know about the SECURE Act and give you some planning strategies to consider as well. And if you would like to get a complimentary copy of the newsletter, all you have to do is give the office a call. 866-921-3613 is the number. 866-921-3613. Uh, just call during normal business hours. That's Monday through Thursday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And on Fridays between 8 and noon. And we will be glad to mail you a complimentary copy of the newsletter titled The You May Not Know Report. And it contains the Secure Act article. So let's dig in and talk about one particular aspect of the SECURE Act uh, that will affect anyone who has money in an IRA, 401k, 403b, really any retirement account, and you leave money to your children at your passing. Now, that's many, many people listening to the program today. As I mentioned in the first segment, an heir who inherited an IRA had the option of doing a stretch-out IRA prior to the passage of the SECURE Act. And I covered that in detail in the first segment. If you happen to miss it, uh, you can visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Uh, the podcast version of this program gets uploaded every Monday at 5 uh, at that particular website, so you can go back and listen to it there. But in essence, the stretch-out allowed that heir, that child, to keep the money in an inherited IRA and take required minimum distributions based on that heir's remaining life expectancy. And the example I used in the first segment is if a 50-year-old inherits an IRA from his mother who recently passed on, the IRS life expectancy table says that that particular person, that person who inherited mom's IRA, has a life expectancy of 34.2 years. And they can take a, distribu a distribution equal to the value of the IRA inherited divided by 34.2. So that means if this son, for example, inherited mom's IRA and the IRA had an account balance of 500000 when you take 500000 and divide by 34.2, the son would have to take out about $14,500 and pay tax on it but the rest of the account would grow on a tax-deferred basis. The next year, the son would take whatever the IRA account balance is and divide by 33.2. And using this stretch-out strategy, it was possible for someone who inherited the IRA 
to really adopt it and use it as his or her own retirement account. Now, unfortunately, that is no longer possible under the SECURE Act. As I mentioned in the first segment, under the new law, any inherited IRA must have the taxes paid on the inherited balance within 10 years. That totally kills the stretch-out strategy that so many had incorporated into their planning. But as I promised in the first segment, there may be a viable alternative for those who wish to use a stretch-out type approach in their planning. Now, this approach is probably best explained through an example. Let's take a 60-year-old woman who has three daughters and has a million dollars in an IRA. She wants to use her retirement account to provide income for her daughters when she passes. Her daughters are presently 35, 32, and 30 years old. She may establish three charitable remainder trusts, one for each of her daughters. Now, if you're not familiar with what a charitable remainder trust is, it is a trust that has income paid to an income beneficiary for the life of that income beneficiary, and then at the death of the income beneficiary, the remaining trust balance passes to a selected charity or selected charities. So mom, in this example, who is 60, when she does her estate planning, she might talk to her lawyer about setting up a charitable remainder trust for each of her daughters. Now, when mom passes away, the IRA passes to the charitable remainder trust, and there's no taxes paid on that transfer. Now, each of the daughters can take income from their respective charitable remainder trust. Now, the rules say that in most circumstances, the income level has to be at least 5% of the trust balance and could be higher provided certain minimum IRS rules are met. So let's say that by the time each of the three daughters inherit their mom's IRA, each of them inherits $500,000. Each of the daughters has their $500,000 balance paid into the charitable remainder trust and no taxes paid. And now each daughter may be able to collect annual income of $25,000 as long as she lives. And at each daughter's passing, the remaining trust balance passes to a charity. Now each daughter pays taxes on the income received each year. However, This strategy can allow the IRA owner to establish a stretch-like vehicle to, to be used as part of an estate plan. Now, another nuance to this strategy that can be incorporated is the use of a relatively low-cost life insurance policy to provide additional tax-free benefits to each daughter. Now, the type of life insurance policy that would work well in this design is a policy that is premium only, that doesn't build cash value. It's a no-lapse guarantee. It provides only protection. You might think about this type of policy as a term life until you die type policy. In the case of this 60-year-old woman in excellent health, a $1 million policy guaranteed to age 100 could be purchased for about $1,000 a month. Now, if you think about the outlay versus the return on this kind of policy, it can be very favorable. $1,000 a month is about $12,000 a year. So if this woman lives 30 years, she's paid about $360,000 in premiums and exchanged 
in exchange rather for a million dollar death benefit. And she could take the premiums for this policy right out of her IRA during her lifetime. Now at her passing at the assumed age of 90, each of her daughters will get a lump sum tax-free of about $333,000 and another $25,000 a year for as long as the daughter lives. And a charity that might not otherwise have benefited gets named as the remainder beneficiary and will receive everything left in the trust. Now, this can actually be even a better outcome than a stretch-out strategy. And if you'd like to learn more, I would encourage you to get a copy of the January newsletter by giving the office a call. 866-921-3613 is the number. Uh, just go ahead and give the office a call. We'll be glad to get you out a complimentary copy with no strings attached. Again, the number 866-921-3613. Business hours are 8 to 5, Monday through Thursday, 8 to noon on Friday. The number again, 866-921-3613. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.